following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. I want to explore with you as a congregation this morning what I think is the key factor in local church health, local church vitality. And you've got a healthy church here, by the way. I'm in any way saying I'm here to help you with that. I just really want to keep that in front of you. Our churches range in, in, in all over the place in terms of it, their health and their maturity, but I'm grateful for the consistent ministry that Heath's had here, the teaching ministry. And I would encourage you, go full board to that New City Catechism. Really, really. Catechetical instruction is crucial, especially where your children. I would encourage you to really be a part of that. It's very, very key. Well, the, the, factor that, the factor I want to mention today is what I've kind of labeled as gospel consciousness. Okay, gospel consciousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what brought the church into existence. <laughs> and the gospel is what enables you as an individual believer and together as believers, members of this local church, again, to to experience spirit-wrought vitality in teaching, in life, in mission, in ministry. I like, your, I like what I've read up there, making and maturing disciples together as a family. Okay, I made note of that. That is crucial. And you're going to need gospel consciousness to do that and to maintain that momentum. Now, the gospel, you see, is not simply for unbelievers. It is for unbelievers. Right? You need to share the gospel with unbelievers. But if you think the gospel is simply for unbelievers and you don't need it anymore, you're mistaken. The gospel is not just simply the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. The gospel is not just how you enter the Christian life. The gospel is how you live the Christian life. All right? Very, very crucial. So my text this morning, if you have your Bibles, again, I hope you do, or access to one, my text is Galatians Chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 11 through 21. All right, and spending most of our time there, all our time there, actually. Okay, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Let's hear God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, have, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Absolutely not. Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, I ask this morning that you would attend to the preaching of your word in two senses, Lord, that I would track with the Holy Spirit faithfully in the text, and my brothers and sisters would track with the Holy Spirit as their hearts are faithfully listening and taking in what they're hearing preached and taught. And I pray this would edify this congregation for your glory, for your glory, and for the good of your people here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Paul wrote this letter in an effort to rescue the Galatian believers from falling away from the true gospel. It was his apostolic effort to stage a rescue mission. 
Now, Paul and Barnabas were crucial in establishing these churches in the province of Galatia in what is modern-day Turkey. And Paul hears somehow that these false teachers, these men who were teaching a false gospel, infiltrated these churches and were beginning to influence them and sway them. And so he wrote this particular letter. This is actually the first New Testament document that was ever written before the Gospels, before any other of Paul's letters. It's probably the very first part of our canon. Paul writes to rescue the churches in Galatia. When the gospel is compromised, my friends, or corrupted, nothing less than the salvation of men and women and boys and girls is at stake. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, says Paul in Romans, for all who believe. The power is not in those who proclaim the gospel. The power is in the gospel itself. My first point I want to draw from the text is just that. Here it is. The message of the gospel takes precedence over the messenger of the gospel. Listen carefully. The message of the gospel takes precedence over the messenger of the gospel. In this text, we have Paul's account of Peter's lapse. Peter, the apostle, his lapse regarding the gospel and his confrontation, Paul's confrontation and public rebuke of Peter. This is an historic moment in church history. If this did not happen, you may not be here today. Paul has up to this point in the letter set forth the fact that both his apostleship and the gospel that he preached to the Galatians came not from man or through man, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. He also related how those who were apostles before him, this is in his letter to the Galatians, how those who were apostles before him had a private meeting had affirmed, had affirmed the gospel he preached was the same gospel they preached. Yet others were countering with a different gospel. So there is really no only one gospel. Paul made the astounding claim, and this is an astounding claim to the Galatians, first part. And it was this. Listen, if even I come back or an angel from heaven were to come down, and preach to you a different gospel than you heard from me originally, let them be eternally condemned. Took off his gloves. It's that important. Keeping the gospel straight is that important. Paul was adamant about this. And so when Peter fails to walk in line with the truth of the gospel, the Greek word there is where we get the word orthopedics from. (laughs) He wasn't walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul confronts him for not only Peter's good, but for that of those of the other Jews who were following in his lead and those Gentile believers who, due to Peter's behavior, would begin to question the sufficiency of Christ to save them. What happened? Peter had spent time with these Gentile believers in Antioch. Now, Antioch's not Galatia. This is an event that happened before Paul hears what's going on in Galatians, part of the same false movement that's going on in the, in the first century church. So Peter had come to Antioch. Wonderful work was happening in Antioch. Many, many Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. Many Jews were there with them. So Peter came to Antioch. We don't know the specific timeline or chronology. But he began to share meals with them. Imagine what it must have been like for you as a Gentile believer to break bread with Peter. Peter, who spent three years with your Savior, your Lord, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing that would have been. What a time of encouragement to them. He's not concerned about being a Jew associating with Gentiles. He's not concerned about keeping a kosher diet. The Gentiles did not have to become Jews before they would become Christians. And Peter's presence there confirmed that. But by faith in Christ, they, these Gentile believers, were not only justified, but they were full-fledged members of the church. But then certain Jews purported to have come from James, but they really did not come from James, the brother of our Lord, because James had affirmed in that private meeting this very gospel. They come to see what's happening. We don't know how many they were. They show up. 
and they are scandalized. They are offended. What are they offended about? They see Paul and Barnabas and Peter and other Jews sitting right next to Gentiles. Sitting next to Gentiles. And not only sitting next to Gentiles, but breaking bread with Gentiles. They're scandalized. They're offended. They're offended. Now, these men had some influence, some level of influence in the Jewish community. These were Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah. They were Jews, like Paul. They believed in Jesus, like Paul. But that's as far as it went. They themselves believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they taught to really get things nailed down, you need to do more. You need to keep the law. You need to keep the law. They also believed that you had to keep the law, the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law, circumcision if you were male, dietary laws, feast days, and so forth, to be accepted by God and truly followers of Jesus the Messiah. Now, don't get me wrong. They, they believed in Jesus the Messiah. They believed in Jesus the Messiah, but they added to Jesus the Messiah. And when you add to Jesus the Messiah, when it comes to justification, you shrink Jesus the Messiah. This meant that Jews like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas should not be sharing table fellowship with these uncircumcised Gentiles. By doing this and by teaching the Gentiles did not have to become circumcised or keep the kosher diet, they were making Christ a servant of sin. And if you, if you, if you, if you let go a little bit of the law and the law's requirements, you're going to open up a floodgate of immorality. The law to them was one whole package. They were removing, Peter and Paul and, and Barnabas were removing the incentives for godliness and holiness by not stressing the importance of Gentiles becoming Jews. So when they showed up, Peter drew back. He separated himself from the Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? There's only one answer. He was afraid. He was afraid. This is the fear of man. The fear of man. He was captured by the fear of man. His actions were hypocritical and began to impact the rest of the Jews so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Pressure, you see. Their presence was putting pressure on these other Jews. Pressure was being put both on Paul and Peter and the rest to go in the direction of these Jews who taught a different gospel than what Paul and Peter and James and Barnabas had taught. Maybe Peter feared his reputation was at stake back in Jerusalem or that he would lose his influence. It was fear. It was raw fear. Paul felt this pressure too, but he would not let it sway him. You need to understand something. This was a social kind of thing, like our culture right now. A lot of social pressure put on you if you don't get with the program, right? And a lot of social pressure was being put on Paul and Peter for not getting with the program. It was fear. I want to get along. I want to be thought of as good. I, I don't want to be outcast. I don't. Peter felt that. Paul felt it too. But Paul previously declared to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, I mean, his resolve. Back in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Certainly Peter knew and believed the gospel. His eating with Gentile believers, his fellowship with them was in keeping with the gospel. Yet out of fear of man, he withdrew from them. And his behavior now was putting pressure on the Gentiles and calling into question the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save you. You know, it's not Jesus Christ plus you're keeping the law that saves you, right? It's Jesus Christ alone that saves you. The root of your salvation is the work of Jesus Christ alone. And so these Gentile Christians would begin to think, maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe I need to do more. And as soon as you add to Jesus, you shrink Jesus. Not literally. You know what I'm saying. In terms of your understanding of him. So because this, was, because this happened publicly, publicly, Paul confronts him publicly. He says, if you, though, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
How is Peter forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? By his actions. He was not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And because of his significant position as an apostle in the early church, his actions spoke louder than his words at that moment. I would classify this lapse on Peter's part. You ready for this? As his fourth denial of Jesus. This is his fourth denial of Jesus. But he was an apostle. He could not compromise the gospel. And that compromise would be okay. Paul underscores this first point that the message of the gospel takes precedence over the messenger of the gospel. Even if that messenger was an apostle like Peter or like Paul himself. So what are we to draw from this first point? Be sure you know the gospel. Do not let anyone, regardless of their prestige, their standing, their popularity, their YouTube presence and giftedness, have more weight before your heart and mind than the gospel itself. Do you know the gospel? The gospel message takes precedence over the messenger. Now, listen. If this could happen to Peter, it could happen to you. It could happen to me. Gospel consciousness. Hear that phrase. Gospel consciousness. So we move to the second point, And it's in the form of a question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? We'll pick up with verse 15. And Paul, again, is speaking. And he may, he may be actually writing the exact words he said to Peter, or he may be commenting on him. It doesn't matter. This is what he says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. need to understand something religiously and culturally about the Jews in that first century period. Jews believed that Gentiles, for simply being Gentiles, were sinners. That's it. Just because you're not a Jew, you're a sinner. Gentiles did not possess the law of Moses. They did not keep the laws and were unclean. And for a Jew to have contact with a Gentile would lead the Jews ceremonially unclean. You need to understand that's the, that was the perspective. That's how they saw things. And so when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well back in John 4, who's a Samaritan, she's very surprised that he's doing that. And literally in the text, it says that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally means Jews do not share dishes with Samaritans. They didn't. And they didn't do it with other Gentiles either. It could very well be that these verses continue to the, with the exact words that Paul spoke to Peter. But again, I said it doesn't matter. Regardless, the truth is clear. And that's, that is this. That both Jews and Gentiles are justified by believing in Christ Jesus and not because they keep the law. In fact, no one will be justified because of the works of the law. This is the very core of what the gospel is, my friend. To be justified here is to be put right with God. It's a legal category that concerns your position before God as judge. It entails not only the forgiveness of your sins, but you're being constituted and reckoned by God as righteous before him. Think about that. Having a righteous standing with him that is perfect, positive, and permanent. That's what's offered to you in the gospel. Now, it's possible to translate the phrases found in verse 16, these phrases, through faith in Jesus Christ and by faith in Christ. Translating it differently as by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The word in the Greek could be faithful or faith. Let me read it to you with faithfulness. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I tend to track in that direction. I think it's, I think it's a good translation. 
And if this is the case, what Paul is stating is that it is by the faithfulness of Christ or by his obedient life that a sinner is justified before God. Think about that. Paul states later in Galatians that God sent his son to be born of a woman, to be born under law, to redeem those who are under law. The very lawgiver submits to the law. That's astounding. Paul writes in Romans 5, it's by the obedience of the one man that the many are constituted righteous. He then goes on to speak about the necessity, of course, in Galatians, of personal faith. You, you need to personally believe in Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is what you need to believe in. You stop believing in your faithfulness, in your goodness, in your law-keeping, and how good you are, and you believe in Christ. You trust in him. Faith is necessary, but let me tell you something. Faith is not a work. Faith is never self-congratulatory. You don't pat yourself on the back and say, oh, what good faith I have. Faith is effective because of the object you're trusting in. If I say I have faith in Heath, where's your focus? On me? You come up and say, hey, Lou, I want to congratulate you for having such faith in Heath. Your whole focus has gone, who's Heath? You want to get to know who Heath is. Lou trusts him. Lou has faith in him. Lou, your focus is not on the person who has the faith. Your focus is on the object of the faith. It's the faithfulness of Christ that provides the foundation of your justification before a righteous and holy God. It's faith. Faith is not self-congratulatory. It's not. So faith is the empty hands that receives Christ. Faith is placing the full weight of your, of your sinful heart and need upon Christ and his faithfulness and his obedience. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who saves and justifies us by faith. The power of salvation is not in faith, but faith's object. I have a chair here. I sit on it. I don't, I don't have, I've had a chair. Okay. And the chair, I was, sit, I was sitting on the chair as an evidence of an example of faith. Again, I'm leaning the whole weight of my, my, my body on this particular object. Who's, what's doing the work? Me? No. The chair. So, so faith in Christ is necessary. Yes. But you don't whip it up. It's a gift from God as well. It is. One more factor concerns the gospel, and that is that when it comes to justification, oh, let me, let me say this, when it comes to your justification before God, and that's why you need to know the difference between justification and sanctification and justification and regeneration, they all go together, but they are distinct. You need to know the difference. When it comes to how God puts you right with himself, your works have no part to play whatsoever. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The false teachers were accusing Paul of teaching a gospel that turns Christ into a servant of sin. They were basically teaching that Paul's gospel leads to a weakening of the place of the law. Since they did not have any place for circumcision... Since Paul didn't have any place for circumcision or the dietary feast laws, they were tearing down the law. That's what the text means when he says, if we are found to be sinners. What is he referring there? He's referring to the experience he just had. These Jews come in. Oh, look at Paul. Look at Peter. They're sinning. You see, for the Jews, the ceremonial law was right there with the moral law, was right there with the civil law. You couldn't separate them. So they were making Christ a servant of sin. Paul says, no. You see, I've torn down that system of law-keeping as my righteousness. I've torn it down. When it comes to justification by faith in Christ, it's not by faith in Christ plus the law. Okay? It's by faith in Christ alone. And I've torn down the law as a system of salvation. And if I rebuild it again, I prove to be the transgressor. You are the transgressors, you Jewish 
uh, false gospel teachers, because you are rebuilding what Christ has torn down. What is clear is that it's not by your law keeping. Now, law keeping has a place. Law keeping is never the root of your justification. It's the fruit of your justification. So here's the gospel. It's simply this. I put it like in a formula. What's the gospel? What's the good news? Faith in Jesus equals justification. Say that with me. Faith in Jesus equals justification. That's the gospel. Here's the false gospel. Faith in Jesus plus blank equals justification. You fill in the blank. Whatever it might be. I don't think you get too upset about circumcision. When's the last time, Keith, someone's been in here talking about the necessity of people being circumcised? When did that happen last? Probably it's never happened here. And so what you begin to do is you say, well, that's not our, that's not our problem. Therefore, this must not have any bearing. No. Put anything in that blank you want. Okay, if you add anything and you're thinking, if you think you have to do more than what Jesus did to justify you, all right, you have a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's dangerous. It's legalistic. It minimizes this full saving power of Jesus Christ. It leads to what I call the, sinking, the shrinking Jesus syndrome. Now, what might you be adding to Jesus this morning? When it comes to justification, what might you be depending on in addition to Jesus Christ to give you a deeper kind of security or acceptance with God? As you sit here this morning, how do you envision God seeing you? How, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you see God seeing you? Through what lens are you looking to get a, an assessment of how the creator of the cosmos is actually seeing you this morning? There is in all of us a kind of aversion to the gospel of grace. We like to think that maybe we can do something or need to do something to contribute to our acceptance. To really believe the gospel is the most humbling thing you ever do. There's absolutely nothing, nothing you can do to secure your acceptance before God. You don't have to add anything to Jesus' faithfulness. As a matter of fact, when you do, you're tearing down the gospel. You may indeed confess this morning faith in Jesus Christ alone for acceptance and justification with God. But there may be something that you add to Jesus for your sense of peace, for your, for your sense of a secure identity. Maybe you add being a good spouse, raising good kids. Maybe your many sacrifices of service. Maybe your study of the Bible. Maybe your church attendance. All these things are good and are necessary fruit of the gospel. But they have no part to share with the work of Christ alone that secures your justification. They do not. As soon as you add to faith in Christ for justification, Jesus in your heart, your sense of Christ and his significance and his faithfulness, the full scope and orb of his faithfulness begins to shrink in terms of your thinking. And you lack gospel consciousness. This happens within your thinking and perspective. And the result will be, listen, if you un unknowingly... <laughs> I pray to the Lord out of Psalm 19, save me from my hidden faults, right? My hidden faults. I know I've done this. I, I'm not coming to you sharing this morning that I'm pure in this way. I'm not. Believe me. I struggle with this all the time. I struggle with this all the time. Okay, I do. But what happens if in my thinking I am not resting Resting the full weight of my life upon the faithfulness of another, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs not to Lou going, but to Jesus the Christ. If I'm not resting fully there, then I'm struggling with fear, anxiety, compulsive disorders of all sorts. 
I'm filled with anger and bitterness. I'm open to lust. All these things start flooding into my life because I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to add to Christ because Christ is not enough for me. In my, in my emotional life, he's not enough for me. I'm not exercising gospel consciousness the way I need to. I would argue Peter wasn't at that moment either or he would have never given in. If you are in any way looking to your good works or to your performance as a Christian and garnering from such things a subtle kind of false assurance of acceptance, yeah, you may believe in Jesus, but practically you see him as the one who gave you the initial lift up maybe and the rest is up to you. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. You're believing in Jesus at some level, but adding law-keeping at another level, adding performance at another level, adding good works at another level. So you are rebuilding what you once tore down. Repent. Turn to Jesus. It's that simple. Turn solely to Christ for secured acceptance and positive permanent justification before God. Good works are the fruit of justification, not the root of justification. God does not look at your good works when it comes to justifying you before the Father. He looks at your fruit to show that there's evidence that you've been justified. But that doesn't factor in at all. So when it comes to law-keeping as a believer, put it in its right place. Put law-keeping and obedience and good works in its right place as the fruit. And even as a Christian, don't, don't subtly fall back and say, well, I, I had a good week this week. You know, I, I, I was faithful. I didn't kick the cat this time. You know, I spoke kindly to my wife. And therefore, oh, man, I, I'm more hopeful that God accepts me. But this week, man, I was filled with anger and bitterness and lust and greed. And I'm like this. And how can God, how can God, I did it again. How could God help me? How could God accept me? Who am I looking at in both situations? Myself. And I have the shrinking Jesus syndrome. And I need to be delivered from it. And the only one that can deliver me from it is Jesus himself. So I repent and turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive me for but not trusting in him. And depending on the fruit of my Christian life is that which justifies me rather than praising God that he enabled me not to kick the cat this week. When it comes to justification... The law's only role is to bring conviction of sin, showing our status of being guilty as lawbreakers, and hence to show us our need for Christ. So the law does in that respect. Third point. Am I going too long? Okay, just want to check. Third point. Those who have been justified by faith in Christ, now note this, have also been joined to Christ. You can't have one without the other. If you are truly trusting in Christ this morning, you have a vital union with Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. and It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Paul speaks of this in so many other places. As a matter of fact, the term we use of ourselves is that we're Christians, right? Right? Do you know that word is only used a couple of times in the New Testament? And it's used in a derisive way? They're Christians. Little Christs. You know how Paul defines us the most? With a prepositional phrase. In Christ. That's who you are. You're in Christ. And Christ is in you. There's this vital covenant union with Christ. Now, let me just say this quickly. If you have heard the gospel that Christ died for sinners, right? The, the incarnate God-man lived and died for sinners. And if you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. That's the gospel. You'll be justified. Okay? You believe that? Okay. You also need to begin to believe what the Bible says has actually happened when you believe that. When you actually believed in Christ, transcendent realities were occurring in your life or you would never have believed in Christ. 
Do you believe what Paul says here? Paul is speaking in a gnomic sense. He's speaking for all of us. Let me read it again. For through the law, the Christian has died to the law so that the Christian might live to God. When did that happen to you? You have that in your experience, Bank? Or what about this? I, the Christian, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When were you crucified with Christ? When Christ was crucified himself. Let me say this. Justification is a legal, forensic, objective, gracious work of God. Yet the one who truly is justified has also been united with Christ. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ, all I knew is that I was a sinner and Christ was offered to me as a savior. And when I came into this awareness and believed that Christ had saved me, there was joy and exuberance and it lasts forever. But there was a joy and exuberance. I did not understand what justification was, and I certainly had no inkling of what Paul was describing here in these verses. And I'm to understand this, and in fact, I'm to believe it. In some amazing sense, you have, through the law, died to the law, in that you were crucified with Christ so that you might live to God. Now, let me unpack this. Those who are justified are no longer under the law but alive to God. Now, you would think it would be the other way around. you think if someone were under the law, they'd be alive to God, but that's not true. To be under the law is to be under the law as a standard for performance and acceptance. And the New Testament teaches that every person outside of Christ is under the law. Okay, it's up to you. You're under the law. You're under the law as, as, a, as a mechanism to try to secure a righteous life with God. It's like a treadmill. You're under the law. How are you doing there? Everyone's under the law. Every unbeliever is under the law. Now you say, what law? The law, the moral law of God. Everyone knows right and wrong, right? I'm getting a workout. Everyone knows right and wrong. Those who say, I don't know. There's no such thing as right and wrong. You know what I say to that person? Give me your wallet. Give me your wallet. They'll say, no, no, it's my wallet. I said, no, I want your wallet. It's my wallet now. They know it's wrong. Every one of us finds ourselves under the law. It's all about performance. What is our cancel culture all about? It's about performance. All right? The reality is none of us can keep the law perfectly, so we find ourselves under its condemnation. Not only are we under the law in terms of, I got to do this. I got to do this. Oh, but I'm not doing it very well. The law condemns me, and therefore I'm under sin. I'm under sin. That's a terrible place to be, but that's where we are. That's where we are. So you as a believer, when you trusted in Christ, you died to all of that. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer under the law. You don't have to keep the law to be justified, right? You don't have to keep it to be justified, and you're no longer under its condemnation. You're free. So now you can live fully to God. You've been made alive so you can live fully, completely to God. You have a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. You live freely in that pre- in his presence. In one way, none of us can wrap our brains around. You as a believer in Christ have been positionally but really crucified with Christ. This is what Paul means when he states I've been crucified with Christ. We've spoken about the obedience and faithfulness of Christ already, right? Let me put it to you this way. In one sense, the only way any of us can be justified before a holy God is if we can present to him a life of perfect righteousness. You have that in your pocket. The only way God doesn't lower his standards to justify the ungodly. God has never lowered his standards. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't. For any of us in this room today to have our sins forgiven and to be put right with God permanently and positively, you've got to present to him a perfect life. You have that. I don't have it either. Who has that perfect life? Jesus. Jesus. You see... So, God who is righteous and holy, and is that as the creator, 
and judge is if the law has been fully kept and every infraction fully met. That's what he's looking for. God says every commandment needs to be fully kept and every infraction needs to be fully met. Every commandment needs to be fully kept. Have you kept every commandment? Every infraction must be fully met. If you had to meet every infraction of your transgressions, you would die. But that's what God stand, that's God's standard. That's God's standard. So when Christ died on the cross, he was being judged in your place as a lawbreaker. Think about that. Yet he was being crucified as the penal sin bearer for sinners. It was a punishment. Christ didn't die by falling off his donkey. He didn't die of cancer. He died as a criminal in the dock. He was judged by the earthly law court and the heavenly law court as deserving of what he was about to experience because at that very moment, he took your place. And when he took your place, you were there with him. Yet before he took the judgment of the law upon himself in our place on the cross, he did far more. He did far more. Let me ask you a question. Why was it not the case? Would it seem to be a a more efficient way of doing things? If the infant Jesus, the infant God-man, could simply have been offered up in payment for our sins. It almost happened. There's Herod. There's Herod. He's angry. Uh, Messiah, a king. I'm the only king. I'm going to go kill him. Why couldn't God have allowed Herod to done that and to accomplish our salvation by by offering up the infant Jesus so that so that he he wouldn't have to spend 33 years doing this? Why couldn't Jesus have gotten it over sooner? Ever thought about that? I'll tell you why. You ready? Although he was born innocent. He was not yet virtuous. There's a difference between innocence and virtue. And Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things he suffered. It's the mystery of our faith. He grew as a human baby, toddler, teenager. You see him in the courts talking to, 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 the, to the elders, submitting to his parents, going back with them. Jesus Christ had to accomplish the law. He had to fulfill the law. He's the only one that has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only one that's ever loved his neighbor fully as himself. And he took that virtuous, obedient, faithful life and offered it as the spotless Lamb of God in our stead. Every commandment must be kept and every infraction must be fully met. And Jesus Christ has done that. So in some deep sense... Every believer was there with him and died with him there by him, by being crucified with Christ. Every single one of us, if we're in Christ. Now, I'm going to shorten this down a bit. Let me just make this comment. So I don't know when you became a Christian. I don't know if you're even a Christian today. Maybe you're still wrestling with the gospel a little bit. You know, I don't know. But... When you, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a change. There's also some very similar things that stay. I'm still a little going. I didn't, I, I didn't change that. You know, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not a different person in one sense, but in another sense, I am a different person. Right? God didn't take me to glory when I became a Christian. I'm still here. So we come to the next, the next point, the last point. Okay. How am I to live now? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm justified. I'm put right with God. I, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not under the law so I can live before God. How am I to live? Well, you're to live by gospel consciousness. You're to live by faith in Christ Jesus. Notice how he says this. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now note something. Paul talks about the life I now live in the flesh. It's a technical term for Paul. He's not talking here about this stuff here that covers my skeletal. 
flesh is an ethical term that describes everything that connects us to Adam. I don't know about you, but I'm still a mess. Right? We talked about this this morning, right, Will? Family troubles. You guys raise your hand. We live not yet in glory. Sometimes we wish we were. All right? We weren't taken to glory. The flesh is both this fallen age and all that still connects us to Adam. We are still mortal. We're still subject to disease. We're still subject to temptation. And I don't have to look outside to be tempted. It's, a, it's right in here. It's out there too, but it's right in here. So if I'm trying to escape the world and go someplace, I'm taking, I'm taking the world with me because I'm taking me with me. We are still sinners, though justified. Martin Luther said, simul usus et peccator. I'm justified, but at the same time a sinner. Yes. At the very center of who you are now. Nonetheless, you've been made new. You haven't been yet perfected. That's yet in the future. But you've been made new. So you have a new identity. You are in Christ. Say it again. One more time. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. That's who you are. You're in Christ. Gospel consciousness. So those who are justified by faith and have new life in Christ by faith, you're now to live by faith in Christ. And so this means you're to focus on gospel consciousness. You're to focus on Christ. Don't, don't, don't think that I can't get enough gospel in my ears. I need to pray. Every morning before I pray, I remind myself of the gospel again and again and again. And that's why you're in community. Okay, to remind yourself of the gospel. It is this, this living by faith in Christ while still in this fallen existence that enables you to grow, that enables you to mature, that enables you to change, that enables you to experience vital and healthy church communities. It's this. It's this alone. So, first, you're to live by faith in Christ who is very God of very God. Very God of very God. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul very rarely uses that, term, that phrase. He does here, though. I think he does to underscore the omnipotence and strength of your Savior. <laughs> the one whom you are to trust, live by faith in this one, is the unique and dearly loved Son of God. You know how much the Father loved the Son? And the Son loved the Father? Well... It's that son of God you're to trust in. He remains the son of God whom you and I are to look to in faith. It's not faith per se that saves you, but it's Jesus Christ, the son of God, who saves you through faith. He has the power as the son of God to save you. By delivering you from the guilt and power of sin and the wrath that sin deserves, but he has the power to keep you too. believe him, trust him, rest in him, the son of God. The object of our faith is the son of God, the Theanthropos, the God man. Second, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you. Who, who loved you. He shared the same love the Father has for us. And what motivated the Son of God to give himself up for us? He did so because he loved us. This reality has to be held onto by faith. Jesus Christ loved the morally deficient and the unlovely. Do you see Jesus Christ this way regardless of your circumstances this morning? I'm seriously asking you that. Do you see that you are loved by the omnipotent Son of God? We sang about that. Do you see him as the all-powerful Son of God who gave himself up for you because he loved you? In the book of Revelation, John puts it this way. He uses the present tense, not the past tense. Speaking of the Son, speaking of Christ, the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood. You know, he loved us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He never stops loving us. Now, I've got a very important question to ask you. And this is, a, this is so important. Do you see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loving you or merely putting up with you? Do you see him as loving you? Even on your bad hair days? Or just putting up with you? 
See, if you don't see Jesus as loving you, now that doesn't excuse your sin. That doesn't excuse your wrongdoing. As a matter of fact, Jesus has more pity for you when you sin than hatred. He doesn't hate you. He loves you, and he wants to help you. And he won't ever reject you. That's why, re- that's why the only solution when you sin is to repent and go to Christ. And he's there to welcome you. He's there to welcome you. He loves you. He loves you. And that's good news, isn't it? That's the best news you're going to hear today. Third, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. This giving up is his giving up of himself in death as the only righteous law keeper as payment for our sins. It's sacrificial language. But the only way this could have happened is if first the eternal Son of God became incarnate. Oh, don't take Christmas and Easter and separate them. Easter is dependent on Christmas, and Christmas was there for Easter. The omnipotent Son of God assumed in the womb of that woman Mary, that virgin Mary, human flesh, human flesh. It was a holy conception, a holy, sacred conception. But he came specifically to dive into the mess we live in. He came to the sewer of our own experience. And he he swam through that for our sakes. He gave himself up to be a human in order that he might give himself up on the cross. Before he died for us, he gave himself up at all the law keeping. What what was that all about? What was Jesus doing those three years of ministry? He was securing his whole life, but culminating in his baptism and then his temptation. He was securing righteousness for the unrighteous. He was meeting, he was me doing every commandment God had. He was loving God with his whole heart, mind, and strength. And, and, he was, and then he was getting ready to bear the full weight of the wrath of God. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew that, quoting Psalm 22, that he was forsaken so that you and I might not be forsaken. Because right there, he was the great asbestos that covered all his people. And we died with him there. And we rose with him three days later. Now, here is the essence of gospel consciousness. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Say that with me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. One more time. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Martin Luther basically said in his commentary on Galatians that you really don't understand the gospel unless you can say those little words, for me. And that says more about him than it does about you. Okay, it says more about him than it does about you, but it's about you nonetheless. Now, do me a favor. Look at your Bibles and tell me what is the what is the punctuation at the end of verse 20? What is the punctuation at the end of verse 20? A period. Okay, period. Thank you. Everyone agree? Everyone's got a period. Okay. Now, punctuation is the decision translators make. Uh, most, most of the thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, the Greeks weren't too concerned about punctuating things. All right, so when you go to a translation, you have a standard Greek text. It's called the Nestle Island. and use the Nestle Island to translate all the various versions we have, all right, in the New Testament. And so it's the, it's the translator's editor's decision to punctuate the way they do. But listen, this is a wrong punctuation. Paul didn't say this with a deadpan face. He loved me and gave himself for me. This was a neon sign in Paul's brain going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. He loved me. He gave himself. I was a persecutor of the church. I was a self-righteous prig. I, I looked down my nose at every single other human being that ever walked on the planet. And yet he, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. There should be a thousand exclamation marks here in your, in your Bibles, not just one. That's the point. You see, you, you can read into Paul's emotions here. He's, he's not wanting you simply to say this with a yawn. He wants you to have gospel consciousness. It's got to impact you. And that's why you've got to preach it to yourself. It's by holding to the truth of justification by faith. And not justification by faith plus works that make you much, that makes much of Christ and makes much of God's grace. Paul put it this way. This is his conclusion. 
Therefore, I do not nullify the grace of God. Of course not. For if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were up to me, then Christ died for nothing. Then Christ died for no purpose. You see, to hold to the false legalistic teaching that, yes, yes, I must believe in Jesus, but I need a little more insurance. I need to take out a little more insurance, and so I'm going to really strive hard to, to, to do what I know I need to do. Oh, no, 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 no. If, if that's your thinking, you see, if that's your thinking, then you, you, you're holding to a false gospel. It's a Jesus plus gospel, all right? Put your works in the right place. Put your good works in the right place. The good works are fruit, not root. And when it comes to justification, not only must you be saved from your sins, you must be saved from your damnable good works too. Both. Both. Now, that's to minimize Christ. If it's by your righteousness, you have minimized Christ. You have shrunk Jesus down. And you don't have the full impact of the gospel working, working in your heart. Gospel consciousness. So it's by growing in this gospel consciousness that I would argue that you'll find the motivation. The motivation and the power to live fully to God. And to grow up in Christ and hence to know gospel vitality in your personal life and in your church community. Gospel consciousness is the key to your walk as a believer and your fellowship and ministry as a church family. It's gospel consciousness. So the message of the gospel takes precedence over the messenger. So make sure you know the gospel. Make sure you preach it to yourself every day. Like an old Kellogg's cornflake commercial. There's an old Kellogg's cornflake commercial years ago. It dates me. Something like this. Kellogg's cornflakes. Taste them again for the first time. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Taste it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. This is what motivates you to deal with sin. This is what motivates you to to be a loving church community. It's the gospel, gospel consciousness. So those who have been justified by faith in Christ have been really and vitally united to Christ. So it's not a legal fiction. You know, it's not illegal. You have a relationship with Christ. All right? And it's his righteousness that represents you before the throne of grace. And finally, the way you are to now live, even in this fallen, messy world, is by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Make much of this. Make much of this. This will not lead to lawlessness. This will not lead to some sort of funky disobedience. The more you make of this, the more obedient you will actually become. How can you not? How can you look at the face of Christ who loved you and gave himself for you and really hold on to that and then say, I just want to live the way I want to live. You can't do that. You cannot psychologically, spiritually, and morally do that. And the bigger the love of Christ is for you, the more power and strength you'll have to live an obedient life for him, but never trust in the obedience. Put the obedience where it belongs. It's the fruit. It's important, but it's not the root. My obedience, which God calls me to obey, my father calls me to obey, and sometimes my father will chastise me because I'm not obeying. I understand that. But my obedience can never justify me. My obedience as a Christian can never make me better than what Christ has made me in God's eyes. Why? Because it comes from me. My good works are still shot through with my imperfections because I'm not yet glorified. So I want to do them. I want to honor God by my life. And you as a community want to honor God by your, by, by your gathering and by the, the works you do as a community. Yes, yes, yes but make sure they stay where they belong when it comes to justification by faith. It's not your works. It's the righteousness of another, an alien righteousness, and righteousness that belongs to someone other than yourself. And his name is Jesus, and he's the Messiah, and he loves you, and he gave himself for you. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for this community of saints. I'm so grateful for the pastoral leadership of Joel and Keith. I'm so grateful, Father, for what you're doing here in this community, Ossipi, Crossroads. I pray your blessing now upon those who heard the word. May they, may they take what they've heard. May they, may they meditate upon it and chew it and digest it again and again like a cow chews cud. Father, may they, may they meditate on it. May they, may they hear that gospel again and again and again. And I pray your richest of blessings on this church body. I pray for the days to come that they will see growing maturity among the, among the members here, growing effectiveness in their mission in the Ossipi area. I pray that Christ would be honored and glorified here. And what a privilege to share worship with them this morning. We give you all the praise, all the glory. And we're so grateful for the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.